The views and opinions expressed are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any company. Any content provided should be considered their opinion and are not intended to be interpreted as an endorsement. Today's topic is a look into the life of a scientist solving a problem. Welcome to our Solutions for Nano Analysis podcast brought to you by Bruker Nano Analytics. We look forward to bringing you a new podcast regularly. My name is Cody Morton. I'm a marketing communications specialist at Bruker Nano Analytics and an information enthusiast. If you like to learn from specialists in their field and hear what technologies are solving their problems, you will enjoy this podcast. Every session, we will focus on a different problem that our colleagues face in the lab and in the field. Some of the solutions will be a variation of ideas you may have heard before or even worked with. We will bring you these topics in a new and interesting way and introduce you to updated and thought-provoking results. We will talk about how the problem was dealt with in the past and what we're doing to solve the problem now and perhaps even envision future solutions. Join us as we talk solutions with a variety of scientists and technicians in many different industries in the Solutions for Nano Analysis podcast. Today, we are joined by Dr. Molly Hanlon. She completed her BS in biochemistry at Allegheny College and a PhD in plant biology at Penn State. She is a postdoc and project manager of the Deeper Project, an ARPA-E funded project led by Dr. Jonathan Lynch at Penn State. Deeper is a multidisciplinary project that aims to phenotype deeper roots and understand the genetics behind deeper-rooted corn. Corn plants with deeper roots will have better access to water and nitrogen under limiting conditions, while also sequestering carbon into soils. More information on her work and the work of Dr. Lynch's lab can be found at roots.psu.edu. Thank you, Molly, for joining us. And let's get started with the challenge that I asked you to solve with technology. Are you now working with the tracer or you just have in your past? Do you actively Uh, work with it regularly? Yeah, Yeah, I mostly pay undergrads to work with it, but uh, (laughs) I work with the data. Yeah, so that's a good point to bring up that an undergrad can learn how to use it and effectively use it for data retrieval without a lot of training, I think. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, yeah, it took me, you know, a solid year to develop protocols and figure out how to get what we wanted to get out of it. But once I did that, yeah, I think I've had, you know, four or five different undergrads work with it and it's been good for them too, because we don't use XRF a lot in plant science, right? It's kind of a, a niche, a niche uh, application, but I had some geoscience students and some soil science students, and it's a much more widely used technology in those fields. So it's, you know, it's good experience for them, but it's good for them to put on their CV too, for getting you know, positions or going to grad school or whatever. Yeah, so they're like XRF. Yeah, I know XRF. Sure. Yeah, right. So it's, you know, I think it's, you know, it's, yes, it's beneficial for me because I'm not spending 30 hours a week just processing samples, but it's, 
I think a beneficial educational experience for them. So I challenged you with, let's talk about solving a problem. Did you come up with some sort of problem that's getting solved with the technology? Yeah, that's, I mean, the whole reason we started using the technology. So we're plant scientists, more specifically root biologists. So we study, you know, how plant roots interact with soil, how they take up nutrients, how they take up water, and how different features of plant roots lead to improved performance under stressful conditions. We know that, you know, with climate change, water is a limiting resource in agriculture and it's, you know, rainfall is more variable. We also know that in a lot of places we apply too much fertilizer. So if plants could be productive with less, that would be a win-win in many situations. There's also the thought kind of going around of late that having plant roots that are deeper in the soil can lead to improved carbon sequestration. Um, and so it's a way to mitigate some, you know, carbon dioxide emissions by storing that, locking that away in the soil. And roots are the way we get it there. So, you know, the, a quick side question, and sometimes I might throw these at you and they wind up on the cutting room floor because there's two kooky. But if the roots go deeper, mm -hmm. does that then keep the plant safer from contamination on the topsoils? Or does that play into it at all? And that's not really, I mean, maybe in some instances, that's not really something we study. We're interested in roots going deeper because under drought, you know, there's, there's deep soil water. I'm, anyone who's dug a hole right? Knows that. So the, the surface might dry out, but water is kept deep. And then nitrogen moves with the water uh, fraction in soil. So the same, you know, that's where your nitrogen is. So if you have a plant that has deeper roots, it will have access to those resources when they're limited. So, you know, in addition to, you know, locking up carbon, having deeper roots can lead to a more efficient plant. And the lab I'm in at Penn State, we've studied that for, you know, 20 plus years, what characteristics lead to an improved root system? And we've studied it in terms of morphology and anatomy and architecture and all of these things that describe the shape and the makeup of a root system. But one of the biggest challenges is measuring actually where the roots are in soil. So you can, you know, dig a big trench. This is what people have done for over a hundred years, right? Dig a big trench and go in there and measure and count and excavate roots and that is slow and laborious and low throughput and it will not be helpful other than look we did this once you can't do that thousands of times in the way that we need to to really select on a genetic basis for these improved traits people use cameras in the soil it's a system called mini rhizotron so you put a tube in the soil and you put a camera in there and it measures you can see where the roots are and that's good, but again, you have to put a tube in, you have to put a camera in, you get all this data out, it's messy, and you create an artificial surface that the roots might interact with that tube face and grow differently than they would in a natural environment. Our lab has historically used this, this uh, really fun activity called soil coring, where you take a metal tube and you drive it into the ground, either using something mounted on a tractor or an ATV. Um, but 
So for a lot of our work, we work in fields where we can't run over the plants. So we have to do it by hand. So we are in the field with sledgehammers, pounding these into the ground and then pulling them up out of the ground hundreds and hundreds of times. You called it fun, I think. I'm waiting for the fun part. <laughs> yeah, oh, so we call it, we, we, you know, in addition to that, there's a lot of digging holes and carrying things around the field. We've, over the past few years, taken to calling it corn fit. And our goal is to, we think we can really monetize it. Like we can charge people to come do a workout in our cornfields, but we haven't, maybe we can blame COVID for not, you know, taking advantage fully of that business opportunity. There but, you go. Um, yeah, it's a... Do the undergrad students appreciate corn fit? <laughs> I think appreciate is, a, yeah. I think like, you know, I've done this work, all you know, field sites all across the U.S. And every time we go and we get this team of undergrads to help us, they're really excited. You know, these like 20-year-old guys, they're like excited for like the first five. And then after that, you know, <laughs> it's just like. Oh, this is tough. Like this is how many, you know, how many of those do you have to do to get good information collected? It would seem like you'd have to do dozens and dozens. Oh, I've done about 6,000. Yeah. <laughs> and then it takes a lot of time. So, you know, yes, there's this physical component that's really difficult, but then you have a tube of 60 centimeters of soil. That's about uh, two inches or so in diameter. And you have to break that into sections and get all of the roots out and then scan that for root length or weigh it right so it's it takes I, I collect samples in august and it takes about a year even with a team of undergrads to get data out of that so that's the problem measuring roots is a pain in many many different ways our solution or our hypothesis is that we know things about soil namely that ele elemental availability varies with depth and soil physical and chemical properties vary with depth. For example, you know, soil can get more acidic or basic with depth, and that can make elements more or less available to the plant along that gradient. So we hypothesize that a plant root that or a plant that has a deeper root system will have access to a different kind of library of elements than a plant that has a shallow root system. So we can take advantage of what we know about soil and what we know about plant nutrition and what we see in the leaf tissue to make a guess about where the roots are in the soil. It works, you know, I've, I've done this at a bunch of different locations and, and we can get good data out of this. We can get relatively good predictive models that give us an idea of root depth and we can differentiate plants of different root, you know shapes essentially root system shapes that can be valuable to us in a larger context um that's excellent now i'm curious and i think you're you're touching on it quite a bit how does the handheld xrf help you approach that problem right so you can you know analyze leaf elemental tissue using icp and people do that all day we have an icp in our lab, but it takes a lot longer. There are consumables, there's maintenance. You know, you with XRF, you can't get every element, especially in plant tissue, but you can't get every element with ICP either, right? We're missing the halides and some things are just kind of tricky. So ICP is our, our gold standard, but it's not really gold. Um, and with XRF, I can get data that 
you know, give me a story much more quickly, much more easily. I can leave undergrads unsupervised to run it. I'm not troubleshooting. I'm not changing out argon tanks. I'm not clearing nozzles. <laughs> you know, it's just a lot more hands-off. We replace the window every so often when the plastic starts to wear out and that's it. So there are, you know, there are reasons why ICP is great, but for this type of work where I'm not truly needing fully quantitative PPB type of precision, I'll take the throughput and the ease and the, you know, less of a burden on me to do that. Yeah. And you said, though, that you did quite a bit of work ahead of time to put processes in place for the grad students to use. What kind of learning did you do when you were putting those processes in place? Did you go down one path and you're like, oh, that's not going to quite work. I need to go a different direction. It was just a lot of right. So our, our end goal is can we take handheld XRF out into the field? Can you walk through a field and you can, you know, test plots and know what's going on? Due to being at Penn State and in Pennsylvania, they don't like us taking handheld XRF devices out of the room that they have said we can use it in. So we bring the plant samples to the room and use it there. But that's our, you know, that's the reason, another reason we wanted to use handheld XRF. Theoretically, you could actually take it out yeah. into the field and do it in the field. Yeah. Theoretically. Yeah. Theoretically. Okay. In some states, maybe. And then, yeah, we would never do that, right? But um, So you're bringing the plants back. And then, yeah. so what were some of the other processes? Yeah. Were... So, I mean, plant leaf tissue presents challenges as anyone working with XRF knows, right? It's uh, not this nice flat metal surface. It's low density. It's a cellulosic matrix and it's, uh, there's water if it's not dry, right? So I had to work out a bunch of things to try to figure out what is the easiest way for me to get data that are good enough for us to use for our analysis. So I did all sorts of things where I took a leaf and I, you know, you think of a corn leaf, right? They can be well over a foot long, right? And there are different biological things happening at the tip and at the base and in the, the leaf sheath versus the midrib, right? So I kind of took all those tissues and analyzed them and, you know, got XRF data out of those and then ran that on the ICP to see, do I see good correlations, especially for elements like calcium and potassium, things that are super abundant in plant tissue and are relatively uh, reliable measurements on both XRF and ICP. You know, there are some things also abundant in plant tissue like sulfur, mm -hmm. which is okay on XRF, but it's not great. And it's pretty bad on ICP, right? So like, I, I can't, you know, use that as my benchmark. So yeah, looking at leaf, tissue of different developmental stages and different thickness, all sorts of things. What I, what I found worked the best was you can buy, you know, it's kind of like a hole punch, but it's slightly bigger. So we just take punches of leaves and stack those up on the, the nose of the XRF. And that gives us good, reliable data. Oh, wow. Yeah. Did you, did you go to like the craft department of, did you go to the craft store and you're like, I need something <laughs> 
about the size of a quarter. <laughs> you know, I do a lot of weird shopping like that, but luckily for this, so there's a, I don't know what you would call it, agricultural scientific supply company. They sell all sorts of things that breeders essentially use in the oh, field. Wow. But one of which is a leaf punch. Mainly it's used for collecting leaf tissue for DNA analysis, but it works just fine for this. And it's just, it's not cheap. Like you think a whole punch, like 10 bucks, this thing costs like a couple hundred dollars, but it works. You know, like I feel terrible sometimes spending the money on it, but it just works. And, it, you know, we have whole punches and they wear out. This is great. And it's just the right size that it completely covers the window. It's meant to do that. <laughs> I know. So, yeah. It's, who, uh, knew that, who knew that that was a thing you could buy? This oh, my is, goodness. That's amazing. I, mean, I feel that way about a lot of things I do. Who knew this was a thing, right? <laughs> yeah. So Molly, I wanted to ask you before we got started, but now we're started. I wanted to ask you before we got started, what made you interested in science as a kid? Did you always, did you always just love being outside and digging in the dirt? Was it always a plant science for you or did you just like everything and just glom onto plants eventually? Yeah. I don't think, you know, like as a kid, I wasn't in love with science. I was good at science, right? Like I was good at science in school. I mostly like to run around outside because I, I had too much energy. So they just, my mom just put me outside, right? It, was, it wasn't like I'm connected with nature. No, it was just like, please get out get of the, the energy house, out, <laughs> right? So yeah, I, you know, I was good at science. I was good at math and science and I grew up in a small town in rural Pennsylvania and I, and being good at math and science, everyone said, Oh, you should be a doctor. Right. That's, I I think as, you know, citizens, not weird academics, but as normal people, the people who we know are good at science become doctors. And that is kind of the career path that is presented to us. So I said, okay, I'll be a doctor. So I went to college. I was a biochemistry major. I was pre-med and I figured, oh, I should work in a lab to get some experience. That's good on your resume. So I emailed a professor I had. She said, I don't have a position, but my neighbor, she's a plant physiologist. She has the position. So I said, okay. I said, okay. I went in, I met with her. I took this job. No, like plants. I didn't like learning about plants because I think plant science is presented in a pretty boring way to students. You know, my sister, my sister is now a biology professor. We talk about this all the time. Students are taught photosynthesis, right? Like memorize the electron transport chain. Right. Sure. Or you're taught like these are trees and memorize that this is a maple leaf. And, you know, we're we're not taught, you know, oh, plants are, are really cool. They make their own energy from sunlight, right? Like we're not taught even things about secondary compounds and secondary metabolites and plants being the basis for all these natural products that we have. Yeah. Um, So yeah, I was not, I did not. Science doesn't have great marketing. No, (laughs) no, it doesn't needs better marketing. It doesn't have great marketing. (laughs) You know, I think it's there. There are a few things, you know, it's big agriculture now is, you know, corporate and evil. And it's, it's not, it's a lot, a lot of good scientists trying to do good work. And, but people tend to shy away from that a bit. 
you know, in the greater realm of science, there have been so many great discoveries that have come from plant science. We've discovered so many things in plants that we then later discover in flies and in mice and whatever. But like, there's only, you know, look at Nobel Prize winners. <laughs> you know, there aren't plant scientists who have won the Nobel Prize, right? There's right. one, two, something like that. It's, yeah. you know, it's, it's so, underrepresented. Yeah. Yeah. So plant science is not, um, not a field that I think, you know, it, people are encouraged to go into. I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing, right? I think you can discover science and then discover plants. I think there's no reason that we need to be out marketing to nine-year-olds to get them to become plant scientists, I think. So you did the, you did the uh, interview and then did you work with this neighbor of the yeah, so I went to a small liberal arts school, Allegheny College, and we, yeah, I got a job in this lab um, that my advisor had some USDA funding to work on mycorrhizal fungi in, and interactions with tomato. So I just started working, you know, you start in a lab as an undergrad, right, doing dishes and you know, maybe making media if you don't screw that up and you slowly advance up the chain. And I just kept showing up. I think I just stuck around <laughs> and eventually I started to figure some things out and, you know, I liked it, it, it much to my uh, desire to not want to like it. I did. And I, but I was still, I was kind of stubborn. I thought I was st I'll still go to medical school. And so I took the MCAT and I sat down, I was going to apply to med school and I couldn't, I just could not do it. And so I went to my advisor's office and I said, I don't think. I don't think I want to go to medical school. And she turned around and she said, oh, I know. You, you just had to come to that conclusion. So I kept working in the lab, you know, graduated, didn't have a plan. I went to a conference with a poster. The guy came up to me and said, what are you doing after this? I said, I don't know. And he said, okay, do you want to be my technician? I said, okay. So then I became a, tech a technician for a little bit. And, it, you know, then I decided, okay, I really do like this. This is really something I want to do. So went to grad school, plant biology. Now, how long have you been at Penn State? A long time. I was a technician at Penn State and then a PhD student at Penn State and then a postdoc at Penn State. So. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Excellent. So Penn State is kind of in your blood too. Yeah, I, I always said I would never go to Penn State. Both my parents went to Penn State. A reluctant adventure, maybe. So they were probably thrilled when you came around to the Penn State way of mind. Eh, they're not that that type of Penn State. Oh, they okay. just were happy I had a job and was, <laughs> you know, doing something I liked, I think. So good, excellent. If you weren't doing this job, what would be like your dream job? Is there even a dream job out there that exists, or would you have to make it up yourself? When I, when I was a kid, I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to play in the NBA. I thought this was, I don't even think yeah. the WNBA existed at this time, but you know, my mom's five, two. <laughs> so she said, you're not going to be tall enough. I had to change course a little bit. I, so I, you know, like I love sports and yeah. I think it's kind of been interesting because with new technology, sports have gotten so much more analytical. You know, you watch a soccer game and all the players have GPS trackers and all this stuff on them. And I swam, I swam in college. I still swim now. And it's like, there's so much more data in sports that 
doesn't exist. So maybe my dream job would be doing that, right? I, yeah, some my, sort of yeah. science sport hybrid yeah, collaboration. Right. Yeah, so that would be amazing. <laughs> yeah. Since your NBA career is probably not going to happen. I know. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. Being I, under five foot myself, I, I feel your pain. I I, I'm five seven. So I'm like, See, I, I could you're, be you're there. There might've been some other barriers, just not my height, <laughs> but yeah. So, so if we get back to plant science, what do you think is on the horizon? What advancements are making the things that you're doing in the lab right now or that you're undergrads are doing in the lab right now, what are the, some of the advancements you're seeing in technologies to make it easier or to give you more and better data? Yeah, so this, the project I work on is um, funded by ARPA-E, which is uh, the Department of Energy's Advanced Research Projects Energy Arm, generally not where one goes to fund agricultural research. But in the past, you know, seven years or so, they've started to fund some work in agriculture because, you know, both because biofuels, that's kind of been Department of Energy's long, long time stake in agriculture, but also because of this carbon sequestration work of agriculture, you know, if we can sequester carbon. So in area, there, there are groups working, like we do on, on roots, phenotyping, plant shoots, plant growth. And then there's a whole network of projects where they're trying to develop sensors to measure things um, in fields, whether that's soil carbon or nitrogen or water. So I've seen a lot of this kind of advancement of sensors to make connected farms, right? That's a big thing. Can we do precision agriculture and know that you know, these plants right here need slightly more water than those plants over there, or these ones need slightly more fertilizer because of the, the way the soil is and the way water runs off and things move through the soil, right? So sensors in agriculture are huge and it's, you know, there's a lot out there. You know, a lot of people are using hyperspectral sensors or various IR sensors of, of you know, whatever wavelengths you think are targeting what you're trying to measure. There's less work with XRF and less work with in general nutrient sensing, mainly because people are focused on nitrogen. That's the biggest input to agriculture, especially corn. So yeah, there's there's a lot of interest in, in knowing what is in our soils, knowing what is coming out of our soils, right? So our soils emit various gases that are that are leading to climate change or things being sequestered. Are plants growing as well as they could? Are we getting, you know, the nutrients we expect in the plant tissue? I grew up in Indiana, so of course farms were everywhere. And I never had farming in my family history. So I don't know where they came from to where they are now, but it only makes sense to run a efficient farm. You need to know a lot of information from soil to rain, to patterns, to seeds, to everything coming out. So it's very interesting to hear all of this from the plant science end of things. I appreciate your enlightenment. What would you recommend a listener do next for more information? Do you have um, 
books that you're or periodicals that you stay up on for plant science? Or is there anything that you'd like to tell us about that your group is doing? It really depends what people are interested in, right? Plant science is a is a huge field, right? Sure. Um, you look outside and there are there are trees and there's grass and there, you know, this is not even agriculture, right? Like plants are a vast world in and of themselves. And people are studying all sorts of things with that. Like I said, our, our group mainly focuses on roots and we do a lot of different work with different species and conditions about plant roots. Our website is roots.psu.edu. You can see there some of the work that we're doing and have done in the past. Do you have any have you done any papers or um, studies that you've released on XRF and your um, lab work? That's what I'm working on now. So Excellent. hopefully there will be a, a couple coming out in the next few months. Would those then be viewable at roots.psu.edu? They will eventually? be, yes. yes. Yeah. Perfect. And then if we have a quick minute, what are some other interesting samples you've worked with in your history, whether it be plant samples or do you have anything that stands out in your mind that kind of an interesting rabbit hole? You know, no, that's like, okay. Yeah, we were, you know, like I said, the, the plant, um, the eucalyptus work we did was kind of interesting. Eucalyptus, you know, I guess it grows in California. Here on the East Coast, not something we think of growing in nature, although it is very abundant in Australia. We've analyzed, you know, soils, but plants and soils go together. Have you had any that you've been like way before you were at Penn State or working on these projects ever taken the XRF or seen anyone take the XRF handheld out into the field and done a quick study of something interesting? I guess if it's calibrated for plants, you probably only work with plants with it. You know, I've never, I'd never seen or heard of XRF before, you know, working on this project. Oh, really? Yeah, it's not, you know, I, I guess, you know, my background, I guess if I was geosciences or maybe soil sciences or analytical chemistry, but I was a biochemist, you know, and molecular biology. So we're not. Yeah. How did the XRF land in your hand then without that background information? I mean, you know, my advisor now, I think, got some information. He was looking into hyperspectral sensors and people were talking about measuring soil and he got into XRF and then we ordered one and it showed up and it was just kind of given to me and I was told to figure it out. So that was a uh, yeah. Wow. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> that was a huge learning curve, I bet. There's I mean, not a yeah. whole lot of YouTube videos out there. No. Now that you've got a new XRF, what to do next? That's right. Although uh, the handheld, I think there's a bit more information than the tornado. But, you know, like Kim Russell was someone who, you know, helped us out when we first got it. And some other people at Bruker who, you know, I would send emails to like, what, what is this? What is happening? So we got some help from them at the beginning with setting up kind of our different settings for analyzing plant tissue, what type, you know, what inputs we want to use, what filters we want to use. And we kind of set that up on our own. Sure. Um, yeah. Well, excellent. Do you think you would ever 
get to a point where you're no longer using handheld XRF? Or is it kind of your go-to to start a grad students with for these projects at least? I mean, yeah. You know, I'm just curious. For me, it's just like it's so much faster and easier than ICP. So depending on what we're measuring, I will take handheld XRF any day over getting people trained on ICP work. You know, I think I've talked to a lot of people over the years of using this, and, and there, there's definitely some interest, I think, in the broader plant science community for those same reasons. Even if you have an ICP facility up and running, if it only takes you, you know, a couple extra minutes to collect XRF data on that same tissue, why not get some halides, get some additional information that maybe you won't get out of your ICP data anyway? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's excellent. And I think that one of the benefit, an additional benefit of the XRF is that once you calibrate it for what you want, it's easy to go in and it's kind of a yes or no, is it in range, is it not in range type of answers, at least for a casual user, undergrad students, probably simple enough to go in and say, okay, this is what you're looking for. Did you find it? Yes or no? Yeah. I mean, I just have them run it and save all the data. And then I just have scripts that go through it and give me what I need. So it's not a, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. I love it. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, I of really course. appreciate it. Thank you again, Molly, for your time. For those of you that are listening that would like to hear a brief overview of the slides that Molly will share on our YouTube channel, please continue to listen. Otherwise, join us next time as we talk to a scientist for solutions for nanoanalysis. These are slides I used for something else. It just, uh -huh. to me, these pictures are normal. But I've discovered that most people don't know what root systems look like. These are what root systems, these are corn root systems. So this is a, let's see. And what's the, what's the difference? They look different from each other. Is it just where they, where the nutrients that came from or these are, the these are just different breed of corn. These are different genotypes. So, okay. you know, from this, we can look at these and say, maybe some of these have desirable characteristics. We can do analyses that will map those, map those desirable characteristics to places in the genome, and then we'll try to incorporate those genomic regions into elite breeding lines. So that's marker-assisted selection at its most basic definition. So yeah, there are certain things that are good about some of these root systems, and maybe we want to take advantage of that. So mm -hmm. why we study roots? We don't need to go through all of these. Yeah. So. Yeah, ours is part of the ROOTS program, which stands for Rhizosphere Observations Optimizing Terrestrial Sequestration, which is another acronym, also a word, ROOTS. So anyway, <laughs> you can Clever. see, yeah, they want to increase soil carbon accumulation while reducing nitrous oxide emissions and improve water productivity. So these are multidisciplinary programs, various institutions across the U.S., Ours has a lot of different arms. This work that I do, which we call leader, which I'll get to later, is just a portion of it. We also work with geneticists and breeders and molecular biologists and ag engineers and computer scientists to kind of measure all sorts of different things about the root system. So we most of, you know, we're very good at digging plants. So we dig. I love it. Yeah, we dig plants out of the ground. 
we wash them off and we end up with piles of root crowns like this that we measure a bunch of things from. So we can measure them. We can measure things like root architecture, right? So this is like that first slide. We'll take a root system, we'll take a picture of it, and then we can measure things like how many roots there are, what angle they grow at, how thick they are, how many lateral branches they have, right? We can get a lot of information about that. And we know that architecture is important. We have done some work that shows that you know, changing the angle of the root system under limiting conditions leads to better productivity. In the past, people in our lab have, and Jonathan, my advisor, did work with soybean, and they've released lines, mainly in China, that you know, changing the root architecture leads to much better performance under limiting phosphorus conditions. So that's an angle thing in soybean. We also know that changing branching density from having you know, many laterals to few laterals can allow plants to access nutrients in different regions of soil. So it's better to have fewer lateral? Depends on the stress. What you're going for. Okay. Okay. Generally, yes, but it depends on the stress. The surface of roots have these little subcellular epidermal growths called root hairs. And root hairs, we know, vary in their length and density, and that can lead to getting more nutrients around soil particles. So we know about the shape of a root system, and we know about the morphology of a root surface. We also study the anatomy of roots. So these are maize roots that we dissected on a platform in our lab called laser ablation tomography. It's something we invented and have had for some time. Uses a laser to cut the root surface, which we image, and then we can extract information such as how many cells there are, what are the size of these cells, how thick are their cell walls, what is the composition of cell walls, how many xylem vessels are there? What is their size, right? Like all of this information gives us an idea of what's going on in the root system. Some roots will um, lose or kill cells in this region, which is called the cortex. So you can see this, this system on the right has these black holes in it. Those are arenchyma. That's just dead area. So this, the plant with a lot of arenchyma is generally more efficient because every cell within a root system respires, so it consumes energy. So if you have fewer oh, gotcha. cells, you consume less energy. Mm-hmm. This can be a more efficient route. So we study, and everyone in, in Jonathan's lab studies kind of different aspects of, of root system anatomy and architecture, morphology, all of these things and how they come together. See, we, if, I was, if I was marketing plant science, I would use this information. This would be some of the information I would use. We try, <laughs> we try. But it, it's really fascinating, Molly. Yeah, it, you know, it's pretty cool. And it's, there's a lot here, right? And so this is just one root and you think a root system has how many roots and we try to bring all that information together through you know, modeling, computational modeling and statistics and all sorts of things. So there's many different levels of science that go on here. So like I was saying, we know what a root system looks like on the surface, inside, but the challenge is where are the roots in the soil? So you can use things like mini rhizotrons here, you know, the camera in the soil or historically and still to this day, trenching. So digging a trench and counting all the roots that are there. Wow. Do you only have to do that once? No, you know, most, most people don't want large trenches dug in their fields, so you don't have to do it that much. So I was saying we, we use soil coring. 
So this is what it looks like. This is us in, I think, Wisconsin. You can see a metal tube here being sure. hammered into the ground. That's corn fit. So, but you know, we can also use these probes on ATVs or on tractors, get the information, but we can't run through fields where people want information on the on the right. Yeah. So in the end, we end up with a you know a tube of soil and roots that we break down and we get the roots out and analyze them. So our hypothesis, like I was saying, is how can you know how can we estimate root depth without actually seeing the roots? And this is where we know that that soils contain different elements that vary with depth, and we know that as plants grow through these horizons, they've access to different elements, and plants with deeper roots will have a different shoot elemental signature than those with shallow roots. That's our hypothesis. So that, you know, I also touched on this because there are some challenges with XRF and knowing root depth, which is uh, we have to know quite a bit about plant and soil available nutrient and non-nutrient elements, which something we know as plant nutritionists, that's kind of our thing. But there's this challenge where like I, I had touched on that leaves aren't flat, they're not homogenous and they're not infinitely thick. So that's where all that testing I did with leaf placement and stacking and dried versus fresh and all of that. We also don't necessarily know that taking soil cores and washing the roots out gives us a truly accurate measurement of where roots are in soil because roots grow around things and it's not homo it's even less homogenous than a leaf. So yeah, that can be difficult. So we'll go to this one. So this is our this is kind of messy because they're animations, but uh, let me hold on. Okay, but anyway, this is the thought. If you have a deep-rooted and a shallow-rooted corn plant, the, the deep-rooted plant will have access to both deep and shallow elements. And so when you shoot, you know, when you get the XRF spectra out, you'll have peaks that align with both of those. A shallow-rooted plant will only have the, the shallow element. The other thought is we can inject a tracer element into the field at a known depth. So that would be this purple line. So therefore, if we lack soil elemental natural gradients, we can put this tracer in and do the same type of thing. Oh, we, that's fascinating. We like strontium. It really is fascinating. Yeah. We like strontium as a tracer for a bunch of reasons. So yeah, okay. that works <laughs> off. Like you had said, or like I had said, I guess that's here. We call this leader, right? Leaf elemental accumulation from deep roots. Oh, clever. L-E-A-D-E-R. <laughs> acronyms. Yeah, I love those acronyms. They're difficult. So anyway, <laughs> this is this is kind of where we, you know, are with this, this outline some information. So we can take this this spectra, just even the raw spectra out and get information from that and then use various types of multi-level modeling, multivariate modeling to look at these relationships. And we can use various agronomic data that we have and all sorts of other information to build models that predict root depth. And here you can see a model that I built that is you know, giving me a predicted root depth and I can correlate that to my known root depth metric with an R squared of 0.64, which to, I understand to chemists and physicists, like an R squared of 0.64 is not great. To a biologist, especially one who works in the field, an R squared above 0.2 is pretty good. An R squared above 0.5 is wonderful, right? So this is <laughs> very complex and variable data. So an R squared of that value is like, this is great. So yeah, 
that's how we're using handheld XRF. I just have some pictures here showing the type of images we've gotten out of our M4 tornado. This is a corn leaf here grown under different conditions. You can see, you know, these elements do localize differently within the tissue, but there's also a thickness factor here. So if you sure. think of any leaf, right, they have those veins in them and the veins are a different density than the lamina tissue. And that's really prominent in maize. So you can see the veins, you have higher calcium and potassium. Silica is an interesting one because it's a component in plant cell walls. It's pretty, and it is localized yeah. where you would expect it to be. In this experiment, we've given some plants rubidium at different levels, and you can see that there's an increase in the amount of rubidium in the leaf tissue. This is similar. These are just different ages of maize leaves with different elements mm -hmm. highlighted. It's mm -hmm. just, again, pretty pictures. And we also, there's a guy in our department who works with sweet potato, and he had grown a couple of genotypes of sweet potato under the same conditions in the greenhouse. So this is about as controlled as we get in plant science. And you can see that they're accumulating elements quite differently and in quite different locations. So this, this first picture is showing phosphorus in, in blue and, and sulfur in pink, I guess it is. And yeah, they're, the, the sulfur levels are quite different even though the plants were grown next to each other with the same fertilizer and everything. Mm. The second picture, it's the same leaves with phosphorus and blue and potassium in this kind of orangish color. Mm -hmm. And you see different localizations. Here we see phosphorus and calcium. Looks like this, this one with the more heart-shaped leaf is accumulating a lot more calcium, which is interesting, but it also seems to have more silica in it. So there's probably a difference in cell wall composition going on here because of what we know about the biology of sweet potato being a dicot, but yeah, those are, those are the kind of pictures that we get and that can help us kind of put together yeah. hypotheses and, and maybe tell a story. Thank you to our speakers today. If you would like more information about today's topic or to submit a topic idea, please email info.bna at You can also check out more information in today's show notes. Join us next time as we look at a new solution with more scientists and technicians in all sorts of industries.